This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, September 4th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. A federal appeals court says the now-shuttered NSA metadata program gathering data about your phone calls for years at a time violated Americans' rights. Edward Snowden, the man who told Americans about this mass violation of rights, says he feels vindicated. Cato's Julian Sanchez discusses the ruling and what it may mean for other unwarranted snooping into the lives of Americans. This appeals court ruling is being cast somewhat as a vindication of Edward Snowden, who revealed the NSA's bulk phone uh, data collection. So what did this appeals court say, and do you feel like it is a a vindication of uh, Mr. Snowden's efforts to tell us about it? Yeah, I mean, there's a a strange irony in the result of this case, because the... um... The appellants, Basali uh, Moalin, uh, who was convicted in 2013 of uh, providing uh, material support to the terror group al-Shabaab, had challenged his conviction on the grounds that uh, information from the NSA bulk program was uh, uh, used as the basis of uh, subsequent warrants that showed that he was sending money. and this should essentially re- require his conviction in 2013 to be to be overturned. Uh, and he ultimately lost. His challenge failed. Um, but only because essentially the court said uh, the information from this NSE bulk program wasn't useful, really, after all, that that, in fact, um, having reviewed the classified information, um, the the FISA warrants obtained to wiretap Moaline and his associates um, were not in any important way based on information from the NSA bulk program. Um, and that's, I think, uh, significant because this was really the one remaining case um, from the initial claims about this program and it was disclosed um, where it seemed like, well, you could argue there was still some utility from that, that now defunct program. Um, you know, initially when the Snowden story came out, when the, the, the bulk telephony program was disclosed, uh, we heard that, you know, dozens of, of terrorist, uh, activities had been disrupted or foiled, um, because of information from this and other programs, um, which, you know, it's like saying your cancer was cured by, you know, magic crystals and chemotherapy. Um, but uh, when independent reviewers looked at this, they found none of this really stood up, but the, the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board reviewed uh, you know, that program and, and came to some pretty hostile conclusions about its legality um, but, and, and also about its efficacy, saying essentially, essentially they, they, in almost every case they looked at, um, there was no unique intelligence value provided by um, this dragnet program that had swept up hundreds of millions of Americans' telephone records um, without a warrant or probable cause. Uh, and the one exception that the the board mentioned was, well, there was this case of Vasali Moaline where it seemed as though, based on public uh, testimony from FBI officials and reports, that um, they had sort of identified him as a, a person of interest initially, after having initially had him on their radar, after having investigated him years earlier, um, that an NSA uh, program connection, an indirect connection between Moalin and an Al Shabaab telephone number, uh, was uh, sort of the key to restarting that investigation. And what the court essentially says here is uh, we looked at the classified evidence and 
that's not the case. And to the extent that public statements from government officials um, have given a contrary impression, um, that is not true. Um, and so ultimately, Moaline doesn't win his challenge because they say there is no fruit of the poisonous tree in your in, in your particular case, um, because actually, even in the one case that was sort of left as maybe the one time this bulk program was useful, um, that that defense was incorrect. It was not essential to uh, putting the FBI on Moaline's uh, trail. Um, so maybe more interesting is is the uh, legal consequence. So they say for that reason because actually this wasn't useful, actually it didn't taint the rest of the investigation and the prosecution, um, we don't review or overturn your your conviction for providing material support to a terror group. Um, but uh, they do nevertheless conclude first that uh, the program was unlawful. Um, remember, this was based on an authority under Section 215 of the Patriot Act to collect uh, uh, information, tangible things, essentially business records, uh, that are relevant to an authorized investigation and agreeing with a lot of other legal scholars uh, who've looked at this and the Privacy Civil Rights Oversight Board, um, the court says, well, look, the statute says this is an authority to get an order for records relevant to an investigation. So clearly what Congress contemplates here is there is a specific investigation, a specific national security investigation, and the records that you're allowed to get with an order are records with some specific link to that particular investigation and the facts of that investigation. Um, and if Congress had you know, wanted to say you can get records potentially useful for any number of future investigations, they would have said that. Um, but the way they wrote the statute, they said, no, there's a nexus to um, some particular investigation, uh, presumably that has its own predication, its own um, you know, basis that there's probable cause to think an actual crime or other misconduct is going on. And so the, you know, the idea that uh, relevance is, of course, a very low standard. Um, so you might be able to get quite a lot um, based on some link to an investigation. Um, but it wasn't carte blanche. It wasn't an invitation to get everyone's phone records because they might be relevant to something in the future. Um, and that would just sort of make a joke of the law. So they held that, but said no. But it didn't end up tainting the investigations. And maybe most interesting, um, they they suggest, but do not actually hold that. In addition to being unlawful, um, because you know it just clearly did not comply with the terms of the statute, um, that it may also have been unconstitutional. Uh, and this is significant because it is it is a a further sign of the deterioration of the uh, you know. Quite, quite harmful third-party doctrine, a legal doctrine going back to a series of cases from the late 70s um, that essentially says you have no Fourth Amendment rights in information uh, about you or your communications that is held by third parties. So your bank information, uh, the phone records your phone company has about you, the browsing information that your internet service provider might have about you or that platforms like Google and Facebook and, and Twitter might have about you, um, except for the contents of your communications. Um, so later, later rulings and statutes have protected content, but any other information they have about you is uh, essentially information you've given up your Fourth Amendment rights in. And that's... Uh, yeah, was essentially a doctrine that even at the outset, even when it was first handed down, a lot of legal scholars found uh, pretty troubling. 
uh, and that as technology has evolved, has has created essentially an enormous loophole in the Fourth Amendment, because enormous amounts of very revealing information um, can therefore be obtained without fulfilling the Fourth Amendment's uh, requirement for a particularized warrant based on probable cause. So the court suggests that there are problems with the so-called third-party doctrine, but they do not hold that it is a problem? That's right. Uh, and you know the way courts normally operate is they're not going to decide a constitutional question if they don't have to. Um, so this is an instance where, one, they're, they're already saying this program was unlawful on statutory grounds, but they've also found that ultimately Moline is not going to get the relief he wants um, because whether it was unlawful or not, um, that is the, the, the program that got this telephone information, it was not important to the warrant that was ultimately obtained. So the, the, the evidence that was introduced to convict him was not tainted by whatever illegality was involved in obtaining this telephony metadata. And so if it's not going to make a difference, you know, courts, courts tend to essentially not make pronouncements about, um, about constitutional issues that can be avoided. So they go through a kind of interesting discussion of why the third party doctrine, um, is, is problematic in the modern context and why the holdings of Smith v. Maryland, which is the case that's seen as establishing the third party doctrine, uh, don't fit the facts of, uh, Moaline's case or of, you know, modern telecommunications more generally very well. Uh, so they point out that, so Smith is a case involving some very limited information about an obscene phone caller, essentially. Um, just, the, the barest possible information about the fact that a call was connected between or the call was placed from one number to another, not even whether it was connected. And, you know, they point out, look, there's a lot more information in modern telephony records. There's actually a, a huge amount of detail um, about um, the endpoints of that communication and, you know, how long the call goes on and other details about how that call is routed. Um, so it's much more detailed, but also that, you know, interestingly, analytic capacity has changed. So we have a lot more ability to extract uh, revealing and sensitive information from telephony metadata by analyzing patterns. And that, that makes it relevant that this was a bulk program. That is to say, um, in one sense, right, Moline can only assert his own Fourth Amendment rights. Um, so the government wants to say, well, it doesn't matter that this was a bulk program that got hundreds of millions of people's of information without a warrant. Um, that doesn't make it any more of a, a Fourth Amendment violation of Moaline's rights. And what the court uh, says is, well, no, that's not quite true, because the fact that it's a bulk program means that the information they got about Moaline is actually much more revealing, because when you have everyone's records, um, you can look at much larger patterns and therefore uh, not just gain information about uh, you know, the specific communications Moline engaged in, but how they compare to or how they fit into, um, you know, the context of a social network that he's part of. Um, you can draw, you know, inferences about how different someone is from the baseline of, uh, of, uh, 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 of the data you're looking at. That having all this other information, um, makes the information you have about an individual more sensitive and more revealing. Um, and in elaborating this, the, the, the court essentially seems to concede that the, the sort of traditional distinction between content and metadata, the idea that the content of a communication, the content of an email or a phone call or a chat 
um, is it this higher level of Fourth Amendment protection is more sensitive and more entitled to Fourth Amendment safeguards uh, and other kinds of information, mere metadata, um, you know, maybe don't enjoy the same level of protection or that we can we can see as something that, that your interests in it are waived when you allow a company access to it. And of course, you know, in, in terms of whether a third party has access to it, um, that's equally true of metadata and content. If you send an email you know, through Google or a message through Facebook, um, that's information um, Facebook has, has access to. If you make a, a telephone call, the um, they don't usually store it, but the telephone company has access to that call. Um, and in, in the case of email, you know, a company like Google may, may actually be accessing it in the sense of scanning it to provide you with ads. But of course, look, um, this distinction, this idea that content has uh, an extra layer of protection because it's the most sensitive and intimate, um, but, uh, you know, metadata, other kinds of information, you just waive your expectation of privacy if you let a, a corporation have it, um, doesn't hold up because, uh, in fact, metadata is in the aggregate often as sensitive as content. Uh, and so because they, 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 they stop short of saying, uh, you know, we find this unconstitutional, but it shows that courts have serious reservations about the third party doctrine. And I think that the Supreme Court's decision in Carpenter involving uh, cell site location information is a big part of this. This is a case where the Supreme Court looked at the question of whether essentially location tracking someone over a, a long period of time uh, based on cellular information that their mobile provider has recorded, has as part of their business records, um, was something you could do without a warrant under the third party doctrine or whether uh, it was a, a violation of someone's Fourth Amendment interests and, and indeed required a particularized warrant. And the court there issued a very narrow ruling, essentially saying, well, we're we're carving out an exception to the third party doctrine for uh, locate for cell site location information over an extended period of time because it's essentially a little too creepy to us um, to contemplate that the government doesn't need to go through the ordinary warrant process to put you know to essentially track people twenty four seven. You know they tried to sort of cabin it in though and saying well but we're not more broadly uh, trying to raise questions about the third-party doctrine, which a lot of law enforcement sort of take for granted. But the bulk metadata collection program that the NSA was using, the the program that was uh, at issue in this case, has long been shuttered. Are there practical effects that we should ex- expect from having an appeals court uh, say that that particular program was unlawful and violating Americans' rights in a very broad way? Yeah, so happily, this is a uh, a, a pretty thoroughly defunct uh, program. It seems that there's at this point a bipartisan consensus that this does not need to be resuscitated. It was um, sort of reined in after the Snowden disclosures by the USA Freedom Act, uh, or narrowed somewhat and, and restructured. So um, the phone companies were now retaining the records, and the government had a kind of high speed way to uh, to get a bunch of them rapidly when it when it needed them, uh, and Essentially, NSA seems to have conceded um, that this was just not operationally useful. Uh, and indeed, it was riddled with compliance programs. There were a lot of instances of overcollection. Um, they were collecting huge amounts of records and, and not really getting a whole lot out of it. Um, and a lot of them improperly, as it turned out. Uh, so they sort of voluntarily discontinued that. They said, you know, 
we're having trouble doing this legally. We're sort of annoying the FISA court uh, and, and we're not getting much for our, our money. Um, so it was already voluntarily shuttered. And then the authority for it uh, ultimately was was allowed to expire. And there doesn't really seem to be any interest in renewing that authority. Um, it, so it, it is it's useful in the sense that this is one more data point to have if the intelligence agencies come asking for it, um, even though NSA shut this down, the position of uh, of DOJ and the intelligence community was we would rather have this authority just in case in the future we find some reason to revive it. I think that's a pretty bad reason to grant sweeping intelligence authorities. And so having some further confirmation of both the disutility and the the uh, unlawfulness of this program is helpful at beating back those attempts. Uh, in a broader sense, I think uh, maybe the utility of it is in showing a shifting consensus among judges over uh, the third party doctrine, showing that judges are increasingly uncomfortable with the idea that you know, vast, vast, vast amounts of data about Americans that is uh, in the aggregate, incredibly revealing, um, is not under the scope of the Fourth Amendment's protection. Uh, and that, in this case, it's phone records, but you know, any number of other types of information, uh, the history of, of websites people visit, um, is information that, as at least as a constitutional matter, the government could sweep up about everyone in bulk um, and not need a probable cause warrant to do that. Um, and so uh, I think you know, a reckoning is in store for the third party doctrine. Uh, and, and this shows that uh, post Carpenter, despite the Supreme Court's you know, efforts in the majority there to say, this is narrow, we're not trying to torpedo the whole doctrine, we're carving out this exception that applies to uh, the especially sensitive location records, um, that that's probably not sustainable. And we're looking at a shift. Uh, away from a blanket assumption that data that you've tr entrusted to a company, um, you, you've essentially also entrusted to the government. Julian Sanchez is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.